Well, good evening, St. Nick's. It's amazing to be with you tonight, and happy St. Nicholas Day. I just want to say before we start, before I get into what I'm talking about tonight, I can't believe that no one has mentioned today yet my favourite fact about St. Nicholas, was that he was at the Council of Nicaea in, like, AD 300, which is when the church all got together to, like, debate what Christianity is and kind of set down from the early church what the kind of core beliefs of Christianity were. And there was a guy there who was like a really famous heretic who was saying that Jesus was made by um, God rather than being equal with God. And St. Nicholas punched him in the face. Incredible, right? So I'm, I'm definitely not saying that you could celebrate Christmas this year by punching a heretic. But I'm also not not saying that. Anyway, um, on to serious things. It's great to be speaking to you tonight. Um, for those of you who haven't met me, as Toby said, my name is Josh, and I have the joy of being an ordinand here at St. Nick's, um, and I'm carrying on our teaching series tonight, finishing off on hope, talking about hope for Christmas, how we can have hope this Christmas. And as I was thinking about what it means to hope for Christmas this week, I was reminded of a conversation that I had a few years ago with my grandfather. I grew up with just one of my grandparents, uh, one set of my grandparents, as my dad's parents had sadly passed away before I was old enough to know them, and so my maternal grandfather and I were really close. He was just the coolest guy, and I have so many fond memories with him. It was from him, much to my mum's annoyance at him, that I got my love of motorbikes. And I have just so many nice memories of him, and he was an incredible Christian man, and I often think back um, to how he just constantly showed Jesus to me without me realising it. And so we got on really well, and I loved him dearly. Um, and a few years back, sadly, his health had been steadily declining, and we had been told that he was coming towards the end of his life. And so I was spending um, the day with my grandparents at their house in Dorchester to just spend some really valuable time with him. And my grandmother was in the kitchen um, getting some tea, and my granddad and I were alone together. Um, and he turned to me deadly seriously, and he said, Josh, I need to tell you something. He laboured the point, saying that if anything happened to him, he needed to get this off his chest. But he carried on by saying um, that he'd never talked to anyone about this before, not even my grandmother. And I thought, man, that's serious. So I took a deep breath, and I said, okay, you can tell me, granddad. And he began to tell me this story, and I'll recount to you what he said. He said, when I was a young man of about 30, my motorboat, my motorbike broke down. The starter motor wasn't turning properly, and I needed a little spanner to get into the casing to open it up. I thought, you know, this is a classic tale. My granddad was a bit of a fixer guy, a bit of a bodger. All his stories started like this. Um, but before, before I could think about that too much, he carried on. He said, um, so I found myself in this little tool shop on the outskirts of Dorchester, and I was just staring at this spanner and the price tag on it, knowing that I couldn't afford it. So what I did was I, I put it in my pocket of my coat, and I, and I went to walk out. And I was shocked. I mean, I'd always known my granddad as this kind of perfect Christian older man, um, and I was so shocked at hearing him confess to such a weird, bizarre crime. But before I could think about it too much, he carried on, and he said, I was just about to pass out the door of the shop, thinking I'd got away with it, when I heard the shopkeeper yell, hey, you. And I didn't know what to do, so I panicked, and I just started running. And he said, I ran away, and I was running down the street as fast as I could. Um, 
And when I dared to snatch a glance around, there was the shopkeeper following me. I kept running, but the guilt was in my throat and I could barely breathe. He was gaining on me. I was staring wide-eyed at this confession. He carried on. In a mad attempt to ditch him, I ducked down the side path of this house and I ran down the side path and I crouched underneath the wall in the back garden, I think what was underneath their kitchen window, and I caught my breath and I tried to hush my breathing. He said, I waited for what seemed like an age, and just when I was sure I'd lost him, I stood up to duck out. And there he was, stood at the end of the passage. He said, I was just as shocked as he was, and he spoke, but I didn't hear it, because I lunged myself backwards, deeper into the garden. But to my despair, I saw that the whole garden was encased by a fence. There was only one thing for it, Josh. I ran to the back of the garden. I dived up the back fence. I tried to throw myself over it. I was desperately kicking, hoping that if I could get over and he couldn't, it would be over, it would be behind me, it would be finished, I'd have got away. He said, that's when I felt his hands lock around my ankle. His hands felt like a vice. My granddad looked me dead in the eye and he said, Josh, I was just thrashing to get over that fence, flailing around desperately. And he was just pulling my leg down and I was just flailing to get over. And he was pulling my leg just like I'm pulling yours now. <laughs> then he chuckled to himself, took a sip of his tea and laughed. And I said, what? I couldn't believe it. He'd properly got me all that suspense, all that anticipation for nothing. So why am I telling you this tale? Other than to obviously enjoy being on the doling out end rather than the receiving end. Um, well, actually this, I find myself sometimes feeling this way about Christmas and about Advent. Advent is a time where we, as the worldwide church, celebrate that Jesus came. We celebrate that God humbled himself to human form, came amongst the muck and the mire of the world to restore our relationship with him. We celebrate that new life comes through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. But we also sit in that waiting, in that anticipation we acknowledge that we live in a time of the now and the not yet. Jesus' kingdom has been established. We see the hope of it breaking through, but it isn't and won't be fully realized until Jesus returns and all things are restored. And we sit in that tension and the anticipation of Jesus' return. And it can be easy, I find, to lose hope there or for Christmas to not somehow feel like my grandmother grandfather's outrageous tale, anticlimactic. Especially in a year like this year, where COVID means that Christmas may not even feel like it normally does. So that's what we're looking at tonight, how we can have hope in Christmas. And to do this, we're going to dig into that passage that Hattie read for us, from Luke's account of Jesus' life and ministry, found in Luke 3, where we hear about the ministry of John the Baptist, preparing the way for Jesus. In all four of the gospel accounts, we hear about this ministry of John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. So what does this passage show us tonight about having hope for Christmas and what might it be saying to us? The first thing I think this passage is saying is that our hope is found in the freedom we receive in Jesus. The Israelites had long been waiting for a Messiah. God's chosen one who had come to them and set them free. This had been prophesied to them since the very beginning. 
And they were expecting a saviour to come who would remove the Roman occupiers from their country, who would lead a revolt against the Roman Empire that freed their lands, that enabled the reinstatement of temple worship that they'd been practising for thousands of years, and that would free that without the control of their Roman overlords being over them. And that is not the freedom that we see delivered in this passage. Throughout the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, that is not the freedom that we see delivered. The Romans were not removed. The temple was not reinstated. In fact, the curtain in the temple, a key piece of that temple worship that was supposed to partition the holiness of God from the brokenness of the world was in fact torn by Jesus' life, death and resurrection. So what freedom stands in the place of that expectation? Well, verse 3 says, He went into the country all around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sin. Freedom that comes not from conquest or revolt or religion, but from turning away from living for ourselves. Turning away from allowing ourselves to be shackled by all the brokenness of this world. Turning away from our desire to be seen as the strongest, the most successful, the most devout, and instead turning towards Jesus. Turning in to relationship with him, to be seen and loved by God. That is the freedom that we see in the gospel, and it's unlike anything this world has ever seen. Do you know what I find super exciting about the way Luke shows us this in this passage and throughout his gospel too? It's that we're shown that the need for this freedom is universal. John is using baptism here in what would have been a super controversial way. Baptism already existed in Israel at this point, but it was for people who weren't already born into Israel and the Jewish um, people and faith, but who were converting to it. So it was only a practice for those who wanted to wash themselves clean of their old life as a non-Jew and join the faith of Judaism. The Jews themselves surely didn't need it, did they? They were the devout, religious, chosen ones, right? But John is advocating here baptism for all. John is saying we all need to turn to Jesus to find freedom there. It isn't about law or following rules or regulations. It's about relationship with Jesus, and we all need that. That's why John preempts in verse 8 the Jews saying, but we have Abraham as our father. They're basically saying, we don't know and need freedom in Jesus. We're the religious ones, the good ones who follow the law. We're from the right group. It's the modern day equivalent of saying, I go to church every Sunday and don't you know I'm on three rotors there. John is saying that it doesn't matter what you do, who you are, that we all need to find freedom in Jesus from the brokenness of this world. And that's... Um, And what I find even more beautiful than that is that the forgiveness and the freedom that's being spoken about here, when we turn to Jesus, that freedom is shown to be universal too. Verse 12 says, even tax collectors came to be baptised. Even tax collectors came to receive the forgiveness and freedom found in relationship with Jesus. In our modern day context, we often miss the significance of this. Okay, no one likes a representative from HM Revenue and Customs, but that's nowhere near the significance of this verse. 
The Jewish people were under occupation by the Roman Empire, as I already said. The Romans ruled brutally. They were one of the most horrific empires to ever govern, and they ruled ruthlessly. They believed that the Jewish people were inferior to their culture. They practiced horrific, violent suppression at the slightest whiff of public dissent. And they also instigated a far more insidious cultural erosion. Tax collectors would have been Jewish natives, employed by the Romans and backed up by Roman violence and oppression to bleed the population of their wealth to fund their own occupation. Not paying your taxes meant imprisonment, public beating, or execution. And it was one of your own countrymen who was helping them to do it, and usually adding extra on top to make themselves rich in the process. Commentators think that the soldiers that are mentioned in verse 14 were there as the personal um, public protection detail for the tax collector to protect them from the crowds. The closest modern-day parallel that commentators think we have to this um, is a member of a Nazi-occupied country telling the SS where they can find the Jews that live in their own community. They were the lowest of the low, so caught up in their own brokenness. And yet they find forgiveness and freedom in the news that Jesus is coming. They find new life in the news that Jesus is coming. This reminded me of a friend of mine um, who, for the purposes of this, we'll call Bob. And when Bob came to faith, I was utterly rejoicing. Bob was in recovery. He was working a program for drug and alcohol addiction. He suffered from pretty extreme PTSD from his time in the armed forces and from various other really traumatic life events. Further than this, um, Bob had been really heavily involved in the organized crime world, which he had been from birth, as his only male role model was the head of one of the largest organized crime groups in the UK. It would be fair to say that before he came to faith, Bob was a man for whom violence was a profession. And when Bob came to faith in Jesus and was transformed, I was absolutely rejoicing, And rightly so, because God is incredible, and seeing that transformation in his life was astounding. But then I began almost thanking God that he was able to bring about this kind of transformation and change, even in Bob's life. At which point I received a very loving and very gentle rebuke from God. What are you talking about, Josh, even in Bob's life? Josh, you were just as far away from me, just as lost before you met me as Bob was. I was just as lost before I encountered Jesus as Bob was. And when I encountered Jesus for the first time, I received the same incredible, breathtaking new life and freedom that Bob did. When we turn to him, when we bring our whole selves before him, we receive a freedom unlike anything we could ever imagine. Where does our hope for Christmas come from? It is found in the freedom that we receive in Jesus. The second thing I think this passage is saying to us tonight is that our hope comes through life in the Spirit. Through the birth of Jesus, God becoming human so that humanity might be united with God, a chain of events was set in motion. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus speaking about coming to establish the kingdom of God, God's reign on earth. 
And this kingdom was ushered in through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. But we know this world isn't currently how it's meant to be. Just pick up a newspaper and you'll see clear evidence that Jesus' kingdom has not fully come and manifested on this earth yet. We see that we currently live in that time of the now and the not yet. And God's reign on earth will not be established until Jesus fully returns. So how do we remain hopeful and filled with the hope of the gospel during this time? as we sit in that waiting and that tension that is heightened through our Advent, through the Spirit of God, which is given freely to those who receive freedom in Christ Jesus. John says in verse 16 of the passage, I baptise you with water, but one is coming who will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's talking about Jesus. John's baptism, he's saying, is a symbol of getting our hearts ready for a relationship with Jesus. But that that relationship itself will breathe the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And this spirit, this spirit is what leads to the first fruits of God's kingdom breaking through. This spirit is what leads to the glimpses and snapshots we see of God's kingdom breaking into the world now. The Bible often uses this imagery of first fruit for the idea of God's kingdom breaking in. We see the first fruit of what Jesus has accomplished now. And what does this fruit look like? Well, in our passage, John calls the people to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. He calls them not to rely on what people group they're from, what family or tribe they're in, but instead to depend on the freedom that comes from knowing Jesus. He calls on them to share their possessions with the poor in verse 11. He calls on them to not take advantage of or exploit the vulnerable. He calls on them to live honestly. And the one that I find most difficult, he calls on them to be content. But these callings, these callings that are outlined here and throughout the gospel, they're invitations to join in through the Spirit with what Jesus is doing as he brings his kingdom to a hurting world now. Every time we see God meet with someone to bring them freedom and transform their life. Every time we see prayer answered and God healing someone or stepping in to transform or change a situation. Every time we are filled with the Holy Spirit who guides us and brings us that new life. Every time that same Holy Spirit challenges us to stand against injustice, inequality and unfairness that we see in the world around us. Every time we see the hungry fed, the poor clothed, the vulnerable protected, the downcast comforted. Every time the Spirit shapes us into more of the person God made us to be, we are seeing the first fruits of God's coming and glorious kingdom. Where do we find hope for Christmas? Hope in that waiting through the Spirit, as we are drawn in to God's work, as he frees, redeems, and restores all things. And finally, um, as I come to a close tonight, I'd like to suggest that we bring that hope to the world by pointing to Christ. Verse 15 and 16 read, The people were waiting expectantly, and were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptise you with water, but one is coming more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's saying Jesus is coming, 
the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John is referencing a rabbinic saying here, something like a teacher code of its day, that a student or disciple of a rabbi, which was a religious teacher, should do all the things that their master needs, anything at all, anything their master requires, except loosening their sandal straps. That was simply too much in a culture where walking was the only means of transportation and the road was filthy with animal excrement and all the other mess and scum of life, all the dirt. It was just simply too demeaning to ask your pupil to take your sandals off for you. It wasn't okay. And yet John is saying that when it comes to Jesus, he's not worthy even to do that. He's saying, don't look at me. Don't look at the crowds around you who've come to be baptised and think it's got anything to do with me. Look to Jesus. He's the one where freedom is found. Look to Jesus. He is the one who is bringing hope. Look to Jesus. He's the one in whom coming kingdom all things will be redeemed, restored and made new. Because we find hope in the freedom and new life we find in turning to Jesus. As the Spirit works within us and draws us into the story of the redemption of all things, we bring hope to the world by pointing to Jesus. Why don't I pray? Lord, we thank you for your incredible incarnation. We thank you that you came, that you were born among us into this world, that you came to bring freedom. You came to bring transformation and restoration. You came to bring new life. We pray that that would always astound and excite us. We pray that that would always leave us breathless and in awe. And we pray that as we sit in the anticipation, waiting and hoping for your coming kingdom, that you would send your Holy Spirit to fill us and to bring us alongside you in your ministry of bringing restoration and new life to a world in pain. We pray that you would show each one of us this week where it is you're calling us to join you in that glorious story of new life for the world. And we pray that in that we would always point to you, King Jesus.